0: Welcome to this episode of the Responsible Business Podcast. I'm Tom Gosling, Executive Fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Andre Hoffman, the renowned businessman and environmentalists. Andre is Vice-Chairman of Roche, Chairman of the Capitals Coalition, sits on the Board of Trustees for the World Economic Forum, and also served for a decade as the International Vice-President of the Worldwide Fund for Nature. He's also a prominent advocate for reform of business education and as such founded the Hoffman Global Institute for Business and Society at INSEAD. Uh, André, you're very welcome and thank you so much for joining today. Thank you very much for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start off with your background and what triggered your interest in environmentalism. So you describe yourself as an environmentalist. Where did your interest in nature come from?
1: Well, um, I also define myself as a family man. I I think that um, family, and in particular family interest, is something transgenerational, which sticks very well in the agenda, I hope, we'll discuss today. My father was a renowned ornithologist, published a quantity of articles and books on birds and on birds migration and the birds uh, activity. And I think that um, I grew up basically in nature. My father started a research institute in the south of France, in the delta of the Rhône River, in the Camargue. And I grew up in that research institute with a constant flow of visitors coming from all over the planet to talk about environment, talk about the, the already at the time the threat under which environment was and the consequence of how Ecosystems function and how you can do something about it. So um, I grew up sort of quite naturally into this. Well, naturally, is perhaps not the right world, but I grew up uh, into this world by volunteering in a number of research projects. In particular, you mentioned the WWF, which in those days was still called World Wildlife Fund. I, I volunteered into a couple of projects and, and it went from there, really. I realized that uh, the role of humanity on the planet has a lot to do with the health of the planet and the health of the environment. And that allowed Allowed me to be quite um, sensitive to these issues.
0: So, how does that background influence how you think about business today and the link between business and the environment? Well, you know, this is one of the myths
1: I hope we're going to be able to debunk during this entire conversation the idea that we are defined by what we are. I think we are are more defined by what we want to be. And for me, this idea of uh, saying that um, nature and people who enjoy nature and humans in nature are not the same people, really, than people in the business, in life, in the broader sense, I think that's really odd as as a thinking process. You know, uh, uh, business is about interaction between humans. Uh, Nature is the stage on which humans live their lives. And in particular, it's the life support system, as David Attenborough puts it, It's what allows us to be who we are. And so the idea of saying business is about uh, concentrating on the business activity and the rest can be defined as humanity in the simple sense, I I think that's probably a dichotomy that is not needed. So uh, yes, um, I I hope, think, that most of my life is dominated by my relationship to my environment and in particular to my natural environment. But not only, as as we're going to see later.
0: So that sort of very close integration, as you see it, between the world of business and and nature and the whole of humanity is is very connected to one of your more recent initiatives that I'd like to come on to, which is the Capitals Coalition, an organisation that you've recently been involved in launching. Can you describe what Capitals Accounting is and what the objective of the Capitals Coalition is? Yeah, well, thank you very much for the question, Tom, because I think that's
1: that's really one of the beginning of the answer to the question we are asking ourselves. Humanity has, uh, since the beginning of business activities, and we're talking about 3,000 years, 4,000 years, looked at a way of measuring the success of businesses and how this business can happen. After an enormous amount of effort and after hundreds of years of trying, we came up with this accounting system based on uh, financial flows. And we measure the financial flows that drive through an enterprise, be it a private enterprise or a public enterprise, accounting is the way we measure performance. Now, I would like to look at the impact and not just at performance. And if I want to look at impact, I need to make sure that I find a metric which allows me to measure the impact one has on not only the capital of the company, but the capital that are in front of us. And I define this capital as free. The human capitals, in other words, our individual talent, the social capital, which is the way we work together, the way we interact, and the natural capital, the natural environment. And the relationship between these three capitals, and perhaps even more importantly, the interdependencies, how much of nature depends on social, how much social depends on human, and how can we sort of chart this should be the equation that gives us the produced capital, which is the one we measure at the moment. And um, I think it is important for companies in particular, because we have to start somewhere, but I think it's important for companies in particular to come and publish an impact assessment. So not just uh, profit and loss, but an impact account. And um, that's one of the aims that the Capitals Coalition is trying to bring forward. If I can give you a little bit of a history, the Capitals Coalition was born uh, 18 months ago from the merger of two other initiatives, one being the Natural Capital Coalition, which was the end result of an initiative launched by UNEP. UNEP, I don't know if you remember, uh, the TEAM uh, initiative, the Economies of the Environment and Biodiversity which eventually led to the Natural Capital Protocol, which was a a protocol which could be used by uh, companies to measure their impact on nature. In parallel with this, the WBCSD, the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, developed another initiative called the Social and Human Capitals, And these two capitals together also produced a protocol which could be used by a company. So 18 months ago, when I was approached by the directors of the two institutions, we decided it would be a good idea to bring them together. And we now have created this capitals coalition.
0: So what you're doing here, then, is really just trying to provide a framework, as I understand it, to make sure that these kind of costs that are imposed on society through business activity are appropriately recognized transparently reported and and managed, Is, is that broadly right? Absolutely. The idea is that we have sufficient data to take the right decisions. And if we
1: only look at the end of the value creation chain, we're probably missing some of the intermediary data points, which might be better to look at. I mean, if I make a parallel with financial accounts, this is what I would call management accounts. When can I make a decision and how can I make a decision based on this information rather than the produced accounts, which are right at the end of the chain and are used for reporting, I use for control. I use for audit, I use for communicating to shareholders what happened during the year and the review. What we are trying to sort of bring here is a decision tool, which will allow you at the time of the decision to look at other factors than just financial before deciding to enter into either a capital allocation decision or perhaps a, a risk management decision. I mean, the sort of uh, a steering uh, company's big issue that we should all be looking at.
0: And you seem to be operating a very collaborative and open source approach in the capitals coalition. So, you know, for people who have a stake in this and want to get involved, how do they do that?
1: Well, the easiest thing, of course, is to join our movement on the website of the organization, Capitals Coalition, and that website will allow you to join either as an institution, or a, a company or any other uh, structure, or as an individual. And as an individual, uh, we, we now have well in excess of 20,000 members, and we hope to be able to grow that rather quickly. I must say that the interest in this sort of approach has increased dramatically, because it is quite clear that the current system of measuring performance is not really fit for purpose. I mean, I don't want to to ramp uh, uh, the the old stories of the pandemic, but there clearly is an indication that our system, as was, uh, because it has changed, uh, was not really ready to look at exogenous type of shocks of that nature. We did not Really have sufficient data to be able to react actively and quickly to the, the pandemic. And the fact that the pandemic was coming was something that was quite well known. You know, we had five or six different attempts in the past: um, chikungunya, dengue, uh, malaria, even even uh, AIDS, uh, HIV. And we were not ready. So uh, when the coronavirus came, the most companies were just not prepared for this. And that is, I think, because we were not concentrating onto the right place. We were not giving the right issue. So today it's more important than ever to have a a bit more flexibility and agility and that is certainly provided by a system which gives you more information about what you're
0: doing. So we've had over a century to sort of evolve to where we are in terms of financial accounting but we're still kind of quite in the infancy of, of capitals accounting. How would you describe the current state of play on capitals accounting and where are the biggest challenges?
1: Well, as coming from the accounting profession, you probably will agree with me that the way of measuring the produced capital are getting better every day. The financial system, the international accounting standards or the IFRS, whichever one you want to, to look at, are improved every year. Every year we have something that changes, but it's getting better, it's getting in the right direction. We need to have the same amount of energy and, and activity described in the other two uh, capitals, so the social, the human, and the natural. And, and in order to be able to do that properly, we, we need some time Sadly, the time seems to be missing because we are running ahead with development and we are running ahead with uh, management of the one-planet economy, the economy in which we have to sort of make sure that we use resources in the best possible way. And um, we just don't have the luxury to wait the 350 years it took us to create uh, industrial accounts that are reliable. So I think that, um, uh, as I was trying to say earlier on, there is a quick increase in interest in this because um, there's a realization that these different factors are probably not sufficiently well understood to be able to do something properly. In the current environment, we need to do more with less. And in order to do more with less, we need to look at the best possible use of all the capitals we have in front of us.
0: So this, you know, an example of this Whole sort of idea of broadening the the frame of accounting. The evidence that it's becoming more mainstream is, you know, provided by the formation of the International Sustainability Standards Board, which my colleague at London Business School, um, Professor Lucretia Reichlin, is is involved in. What, what's your view of, of this development? Well, I'm very excited about it. I was in Glasgow
1: when we launched the ISSB. Um, I, I'm part of it on two fronts. I mean, the World Economic Forum contributed to the pool of information that has been made available. Claire Barbie, who is a board member of the Capitals Coalition, has uh, actively worked with AFRS as well. And so this is exactly the sort of thing we're talking about. It's still reporting. It's still reporting and it still uh, has given us itself as a first task to talk about CO2 emission, which is too small, too little. But it is a very, very useful step forward because that particular field of reporting in terms of impact has until now been an absolute jungle. I mean, I think the usual expression is the alphabet soup. There are so many different acronyms, so many different places where you can see these things. And most of these tools have been created for the financial industry. You know, are we going to invest into a company if we don't really understand how it works? So that's why we need transparency. That's why we need the reporting. Are we going to be able to follow the development of our different endeavors if we don't have the appropriate way of dealing with it. And now this is, is good, and I'm glad it's happening because it gives transparency, and transparency is an important tool forward. But to go back to what we were saying before, it strikes me that the management tool side is where we need to go eventually. But that's a first step, and the ISSB is a wonder. I mean, I, I'm very excited about it, especially now that the, the new chair has been recruited, uh, Emmanuel Faber, the previous CEO of Danone, who really understands the need of um, accounting for impact. I mean, coming from a fast-mover consumer good industry, in particular in the in the food sector, uh, this is a sort of thing that's everyday bread and butter for him. So I think it, it's going
0: to make a real difference. You mentioned that the ISSB is initially focusing on climate change reporting. And, and this brings me on to something I wanted to ask you, um, maybe not just in relation to ISSB, but but more generally, Do you think it's right that so much of our attention is focused on the climate issue at the moment? Or or do you fear that this is crowding out attention on issues such as biodiversity, which is obviously very linked to climate change or, or other capitals such as human or social?
1: Yeah, Very good question. Let me take a step backwards. You know, one of the reasons why we are in such a problem and we were talking about the pandemic before is because we have been uh, drilled over the years to specialize more and more. You know, when I went to business school 30 years ago or 35 years ago, I was told, you know, go for the low-hanging fruit. Go to the things which are easy to be done. Specialize into something that will yield the maximum effect. The reality of the world is much more complex than this. You know, oversimplification, over-specialization is not helping us in this sort of surrounding. So in the same way as the short-term profit maximization, which is the way we've been taught at business school to run our businesses, has had a very negative impact on the planet, in the same way, the idea of focusing just on CO2 emissions, because that's the main cause of global warming, is dangerous because you are, you are trying to take a complex undertaking, you try to take a complex system and simplifying it in order to be able to act on it. Now, I understand that it's easier to act when you have something simple. But we know from past experience that concentrating on just one metric is not going to make it. So to come back to the CO2 example, you know, if you want to take CO2 out of the atmosphere, you can plant a tree. Good. So what's the solution? Plant lots of trees in places where there is nothing or cut the forest, sell the forest and then replant. And so you suddenly have an incentive to behave into a way which is detrimental to the ultimate result, but which will satisfy the CO2 metrics. And that worries me. So you're absolutely right to frame that with biodiversity, because what we need to invent, what we need to make sure happens, is that we do not sacrifice biodiversity to CO2. And for that, we will need to look at um, how we can create sustainable models of nature-based solution, which will allow us to continue to influence the the CO2 cycle without sacrificing too much of the natural bit. And that's something that um, worries me a little bit.
0: And do you think that the push for sort of transparency and better capitals reporting will naturally lead to businesses integrating this thinking better into what they do? Or, or, or do you think we'll need other regulatory or, or, or cultural or other changes to, to really help business play its proper role in this sphere?
1: So can I quote Shakespeare? Shakespeare in Hamlet, you know, the law is an ass. The regulator, uh, and that's for years we've been, de- we've been dealing with business in that way. We've been saying, you know, it's important to go around the regulation so that we can continue to grow. And that's just not a way forward. If you want to create a sustainable future, we need to build on collaboration. We need to build it together. Now entrepreneurial creativity of business is an incredibly important component of regulation. You will not be able to regulate properly if you don't really understand what's happening at the coalface. Maybe the face is not a good example for climate warming, but you know, <laughs> uh, you, you, you need to be very specific in that context. And for that, you need to have practical experience. So I believe that um, uh, we are entering into a golden age of public-private partnership because we needed frameworks and we need to be able to nourish that framework in a way which corresponds to what the real need of the business are. And as long as we take away these lenses which force us to see every business opportunity as just short-term profit maximization, then suddenly there is a chance of being able to do something together. If you look at the pandemic, for instance, we are now talking about uh, $20 trillion which have been promised across the planet to restart the economy after the pandemic. I mean, Already now, it's impossible to do business without uh, talking to the regulator because they have refinanced the whole economic system. So the idea of saying, uh, let all the shackles fall, let us run around with, with our entrepreneurial drive, and we are going to construct a new future based only on market forces, I'm afraid that hasn't worked. And you know, we need to be humbled about this. There is a future where everybody can work together. And that implies uh, working in synchronicity with regulation, not against it.
0: So that's going to require a A sort of a mindset shift amongst leaders around the interdependence between business and nature. And um, you've been talking to many CEOs and business leaders and investors about these issues for a number of years. Do you think the message is getting through? Do you think we're starting to see this cultural change? Uh, And what's the biggest barrier to action in your view? So I would divide that into two blocks. The first one, if you are running a big
1: corporation today, or if you're active in business in a broader sense, it doesn't have to be a big corporation, uh, you realize that there is a change of mood. You know, the the employees are asking you about the purpose of your company. What are we doing? Who are we doing it for? And and what do you expect from us? So if you want to recruit talent, you, you need to be able to articulate this in a clear way. You know, we are here for something. And... That's something matters. If you ask the, the, the banks or the regulators, if you are involved into a fossil fuel type of activities, you will be told, we don't really want to fund you at the normal rate. We will need a premium. So your cost of capital increases. Uh, you talk to your customers. Your customers want more transparency. They want to be able to see what it is you are doing. And this is not such sort of wishful thinking. This is reality. People, Fed sense it every day. So if you know that your employees, your customers, your banker, the youth walking in the streets and destroying everything, saying we need to act, you know, uh, uh, enough, blah, blah, blah. Let's get on with it. The politicians realizing that this is something that will get them reelected, you would have to be a little bit blind and deaf to not realize that something needs to change. So people in big corporations in particular, you know, they realize that the current model based on shorter profit maximization brings more harm than good. The big bosses of corporations all have children who at home tell them, you know, what are you doing? I, I, well, what's going to happen next? And that's something. Sort of so that's one block. The other block is my main challenge now, suddenly, is I have to tell my customers, I have to tell the people I do business with, that from now on, I will not only ask for the best prices, but that I will also be able to make transactions which are not immediately profitable. I'm going to buy some time. And that's an incredibly complex thing to do. You are saying that's, you know, the, the shift in approach. I mean, that's the heaviest lift of them all. From from now on, uh, when you do a transaction, you build in a risk premium, which means that it's going to be more expensive than if you don't do that. I'll give you a very simple example. I I wouldn't dream of driving a car that's not insured because I'm scared about the accident. In the business uh, community, it's the same thing. I shouldn't be entering into a, a transaction, of which I know it can burst into my face very quickly. And so the pandemic risk, we did not assess properly. The environmental risk, the loss of biodiversity, the climate change risk, that's absolutely clear. It's there. The science is absolutely unequivocal. We have it in front of us. So taking today a decision, for instance, investment decision in the long term, without building some premium factor for that particular element, I think it's just no longer possible. You know, the people are watching.
0: I think that does emphasise, doesn't it, the, the importance of a sort of a common language for talking about some of these broader impacts and, and risks, which takes us a little bit back to your work with the Capitals Coalition. And my sense, you know, talking to board members now, is that the understanding's grown quite substantially in the last few years about how you go through that process in relation to climate impact as measured through CO2 emissions. I, I think companies are really getting a grip on how to analyse that. But if, if we have a CEO or chair who wants to integrate nature considerations more broadly into how they run their business, I mean, here we have much less precedent. It's a bit less clear. Where should they start?
1: Well, the World Economic Forum has done some calculations and we've published a paper saying that about half of the world GDP depends on nature. It's based on nature. Nature has a, a consideration into each of these transactions that involve half of the GDP. I personally uh, think that, in fact, it's 100%. You know, you can't have humanity outside of the planet. So if you're on the planet, you're concerning with the environment, so it should be 100% of GDP. But anyway, let's just start with half of the world GDP, which is an enormous amount. It's also this question of risk management we were just discussing. You know, how can we make a distinction between um, giving just for immediate profit, or can we make a distinction in going into this risk management? There are numbers of research. which show that people who take the long-term choice outperform appears in the long run. The short-term approach is something that is not really going to, to, to make a big difference. So if you are in a situation where you have to take the decisions of running a company in a nature environment, I think you should ask yourself the question, how can I get nature to work for me? How can I get nature to work for the company? Not take nature front on and, you know, cutting the forest and mining the, the, the gold, but try to find a way which will allow you in the long run to be able to manage this resource in a way where its resource will be there for the long term. It's about common sense. It's about a common sense relationship between nature and your corporation. It's, it's about writing a contract with nature. For instance, if you build a, a, a house, don't build it in the place where there is lots of flooding surrounded by dams, but build it a bit higher up, in a place where there won't be any floodings. If you are using less energy into your headquarters, you're already doing something for nature and you're integrating uh, biodiversity into, into your daily activities. Look at the whole value chain which part of the value chain, of the supply chain that comes into your company, which part of the supply chain can be improved, not only in terms of sustainability in an environmental way, but also in terms of social and humans. So don't use child labour. Don't look at minorities which are being exploited. Make sure that there are enough women working in your corporation. I mean, All all, all these things work together in order to create a smaller imprint on the environment.
0: I'd like to bring the discussion now onto Roche, the famous pharmaceuticals business that needs no introduction for our our listeners and where your family has a controlling shareholding. And um, I'd like to ask you how the the context and issues that we've been talking about so far in this discussion, how have they influenced your thinking in terms of how you've implemented business practices within Roche?
1: So Roche is a family business. Roche is uh, um, in the fourth generation ownership, and that I think does play a role. We have, uh, from the beginning onwards, said that I would like to have my fifth generation and the fifth generation of my cousins to have the same influence on the company than we have at the moment. In order to do that, you need two things. I mean, you need to have a company. Yeah, and, and of course, an unsustainable company would no longer be there. But you also have to make sure that you create value that can be shared by all stakeholders and not just by owners. So, the idea of saying the shareholder own the business is something that we don't really defend very much in our company. We are seven shareholders, we have 100,000 employees. Obviously, the interest of these 100,000 employees is more important than our own uh, interest. We always say what is good for the company is good for the family, not the opposite, necessarily. And I think it's important to, 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 to keep that in mind. Now. If you talk to me about the mechanics, how do you do it? When I was elected to the board of the company 25 years ago, I uh, created, I would help my cousin, a sustainability committee. It was the first sustainability committee into any quoted company in Switzerland. And with the sustainability committee, we sent a signal to the organization. We said, you know, this is not just about the family likes nature and wants to preserve the forest and the pamba and the tiger. This is about the way we live with society. This is about the way we live with the planet. Planet, and how can we make sure that um, we d- do not take more than we should and how can we sort of create a sustainable future, create a sustainable prosperity for all of us? And at the beginning, people thought it was, you know, some, some sort of um, idle, uh, rich, individual, lack of reality, sense, I mean, all this sort of things. Of course, business is business. We need to make sure that we make the margin and all the rest does not matter as much. So the first sort of reaction I got was, uh, let us make money. When we have the money, we'll give you some so that you can distribute it to your birds in the Camargue, you know, as a charity. And, and you know, I understand that. That's, as I said, I went to business school and at business school, I was taught this. The only way to measure success, the only way to measure the future is to make sure that you make sufficient money. money. You, you make the money first and then you think about the consequences. So these are not bad people. These are all people who are really sort of uh, uh, driven by the intention of doing as much as possible for the corporation. But, you know, if you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answers, I think. But you can perhaps come back to that later. So by sending this message... We decided we needed also a way of measuring the materiality of this for our business. And this is, I think, when we met each other, we, we started subscribing to the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. And that Dow Jones Sustainability Index asked the question, how is the business run and how can you impact certain things? Not a perfect system at all, but at least it gave us the opportunity to look and to compare and to measure against something. And after five years participating to this, this, um, this particular index, uh, we were classified as number one, the sustainability champion in the pharmaceutical industry, and we won it 12 consecutive years. Last year, we were number two. I'm sorry. But um, you, mean, you mean one year, it's great. You mean it two years, it's ecstatic. Three years, it's, I don't know, even better. But after a while, it becomes part of the DNA of the company. When you take a decision, you don't do it for the index, but you do it because you believe that it is something that makes a difference. And if you look at our numbers, we were talking about CO2 before, if you look at our numbers of CO2 abatement, it's spectacular. You know, this, this is not just a question of more technology. It's a question of, you know, just ask the right question. How can I reduce CO2 emissions? And we now have a well-documented itinerary until 2045, it we'll be carbon zero, not carbon neutral, carbon zero. And I think that's a big difference.
0: Yeah, yeah. So not relying on offsets, actually, just primary
1: no, I mean, offsets, we, we can speak some time talking about. Offs- offset, for me, is a license to kill. You buy yourself a virginity after having uh, destroyed something. It's like 007 James Bond. He kills for the queen, but he still kills. And, and, and I think that's something we shouldn't tolerate. If you really want to reduce CO2 emission, we're going to have
0: to stop emitting CO2, which is not possible for every industry, of course. I'm well aware of that. So, I mean, it sounds like part of what you've done at Roche, you know, starting off with this participation in Dow Jones, is actually to sort of integrate into management decision making, you know, some different frameworks for looking at these kind of different aspects of sustainability, which I guess links to what you are doing at the Capitals Coalition um, again. I mean, is, is it really as, you know, as simple as that? Rather than a single initiative, it's more about integrating this into the core of how the business is managed on an ongoing basis?
1: Yeah, well, you also have to look at your business model and not just at the impact you are having. The impact is important because if you manage for impact, you probably have a better result than if you only manage for financial return. But what allowed us uh, in our industry, in the pharmaceutical industry, to have an impact is that we need to make sure that we innovate, bring new technology to medical cases which are not yet resolved, so finding new therapeutic solutions. And these therapeutic solutions, we need to make them available. So it's important that we not only look at the impact we're having on the environment, but also how we can make our solution available to the biggest number. So we've defined our purpose. Our purpose is doing today what the patient needs tomorrow. And introducing this long-term dimension into our way of thinking allows us to today enter into a number of transactions which do not have an immediate return. You know, if you survey uh, CFOs on the planet, you will see that a number of them would be quite happy to cut R&D in order to make the margin of this year. We systematically try to guard ourselves against this by making sure that we uh, constantly reinvest a significant part of our earnings into the R&D process. We have the biggest R&D budget in the industry, both in terms of proportion and, of course, in absolute number. And that makes, I think, a difference to our business model. And that's very much driven by this notion of being respectful of the environment, social, human and natural.
0: You've talked about the importance of being a family business in relation to your attitude on on these matters there's also a very practical implication which is that you have a certain level of insulation from immediate kind of short-term investor pressures has that been important and how have investor attitudes external investor attitudes evolved over the course of this journey as rosh has become an ever more sustainable business
1: That's absolutely fundamental. We are a hybrid type of company. My family controls the company because we have now 75% of the voting shares, but we are quoted on the stock exchange. We are the largest uh, pure pharmaceutical business on the planet, and we are number two market cap in Switzerland. So we do have a wide range of shareholders who are investing into a a security which is a non-voting security and this is something which has brought I think the benefit of both systems. On one side the stock exchange watching us, there are tens of thousands of financial analysts studying what we are doing and on the other side we can afford to take the long distance because we know that at the AGM we will be able to uh, control what is happening. And so that hybrid model has has created, I think, uh, the best of both worlds. We do have consistency in our long-term thinking, but we also do have to satisfy uh, short-term interest barriers at times. We don't want our cost of capital to get out of control, so we don't want to be uh, at too low PE. We're trying to service both the stock exchange and the family shareholder. And look at that, both work well. On the stock exchange, people are giving us the credit of being long-term thinking, which is very important into a discovery, innovation-based business. And the family is very happy to back up the management as long as certain values which we have implemented and which we are trying to leave as much as possible are put into the mix. And you can do both as long as you remember what you are there for. You need humility and you need this absolute obsession to make sure that the purpose of the company is clear. We are working for the patient. We are doing today what the patient needs tomorrow. I'll give you an example that probably speaks to you, Tom, in particular. Our CEO has a bonus paid in 10 years block shares. We do not pay cash as a bonus. We're making shares available that he will only be able to exercise 10 years later. Now, if you believe in the philosophy of doing today what the patient needs tomorrow, then you can you know, sit back and relax and, and take that on. But if you only are looking at the next transaction, uh, then you're taking a significant risk by blocking
0: yourself for 10 years. You've mentioned leadership a couple of times now. And I mean, based on your experience at Roche, what are the key attributes required of leaders in order to be able to think about business from the starting point of purpose and with a perspective of integrating sustainability for the long term, as you've described?
1: Well, the two absolutely obvious qualities are courage and boldness. You need, you need to be not afraid to actually take a big decision. And um, if you're only satisfying the model, again, I took an MBA. I, I've been involved in uh, a number of corporations. As long as you take a simple metrics, which is, you know, we need to boost earnings per share every quarter, you get into a situation where it's easy to measure your performance. But if you really want to be seen as the person who is going to make an impact onto the company in which you are active, you need to be looking at other things. And so for me, the biggest leadership quality required is humility, courage, and ambition, but ambition not on the financial side. Ambition which are linked to the
0: the impact you are having across the, the environment in which you are. So you've you've mentioned doing an MBA on a couple of occasions, and I'm also at an institution here at London Business School that that, that obviously does a lot of business and executive education. And I'd so I'd like to just come on to this question of of leadership development through through the education system. And you've um, recently endowed the Hoffman Global Institute for Business and Society at INSEAD. Uh, Could you just tell us a bit about that and your motivation for establishing that? Yes, of course. Thank you. INSEAD is where I did my MBA and
1: it's a business school which is characterized by the fact that it's a very international group. We have more than 100 nationalities per promotion and so it's really quite a good representation of what's happening on the planet in particular in terms of management. I think that the important bit if you want to manage long term is to be able to constantly come back to this notion of the impact you are having as a, as a manager. Maybe i I'll open just a parenthesis. For me, uh, the future of business management is not short-term profit maximization, but the future of business management is managing for impact. And we come back to this idea of the, um, the capitalist coalition. I need to understand what impact I'm having on the social system, what impact I'm having on the human system, and what impact I'm having on the natural capital. Bringing these three together in order to construct, uh, produce capital which will be stable. So not managing for financial return, but managing for impact. I know that Ronnie Cohen has written a lot about impact management, and uh, there is a good example of a financial investor who has uh, slightly moved his uh, approach, not concentrating himself just on the profit and loss future and coming, but also looking at the impact that corporations are having. And I think that today, business schools cannot release in the business world people who just are concentrating onto one metric when we have at least five that are worth uh, measuring. And so I thought, um, you know, how do we do something like this into a leading business school? So I went to see a couple of business schools. I shall not mention them here, but before uh, getting to the conclusion that um, the best way of influencing the curriculum of the MBA was not just to create a new chair, studying sustainability as a standalone science, but it's very much an overarching concern. You know, sustainability is a state of mind. As we were saying about Roche before, If not everybody thinks sustainably, then you are not going to be sustainable. Bearing into into mind, of course, that true sustainability includes a commercial sustainability, includes a financial sustainability. There's no such thing as an NGO that is quoted on a stock exchange. I mean, you you need to have an element of sustainability, uh, of financial sustainability. And so uh, how do we make sure that people who come out of business school are not just in the mold of Milton Friedman, 1978 Nobel Prize winner in economics, the business of business business is business, but they're getting to this notion of business as a force for good. We can right the wrongs on the planet by introducing a notion of durability in what we are doing. And the graduates of INSEAD, in the forthcoming future. Not yet, because it's a long and complicated process, but the graduates of INSEAD will eventually, I hope, be able to talk to others about the good they are doing by managing for impact, in other words, taking into account the consequence of the the profit-maximizing approach so that they can construct a stable, sustainable future. Because I was born in 58. When I was born, there were about 3 billion people on the planet. Today, we're 8.5. Before I die, we will be 10. How can we have a chance of keeping 10 billion alive and thriving on the planet if we just concentrate onto the, the destruction mechanism we have put in place for the past uh, 150 years? It's just not going to happen. So we need a different approach. We need to adapt. And that's one way of doing it.
0: I mean, certainly we see uh, here at LBS that any courses that, that that have an ESG or sustainability element are, are very popular. And I, I've certainly observed a bit of a shift quite recently from – sustainability almost being a separate elective to starting to think about how it can be integrated throughout curricula. And indeed, one of my colleagues, Alex Edmonds, is currently finishing rewriting the famous Brilliant Myers a finance textbook that you, uh, I'm sure, are familiar with to integrate some responsible business considerations. But um, it, it feels to me that we maybe still have, have, have some way to go. I mean, how far off do you think we are from turning out the leaders that we need to be turning out to deal with the challenges of the next two or three decades?
1: Well, um, the cynical part of me would be to say we have to wait for a change of generation. But I think that's, you know, that's not ambitious enough. (laughs) If I take my experience of uh, having spoken about these issues with a number of business schools, not only LBS, but a number of other uh, schools who are patient enough to listen to me, we do have a non-ally, if that's the right word, because it's not an enemy, a non-ally in the financial department. You know, the the theory of the firm is still very much based on this short-term profit maximization. And uh, as long as we cannot demonstrate in in a transparent way that this is not the right way to do it, we're going to struggle to convince people. And, you know, I'm saying it again, these are not bad people. These are just people who are, I think, slightly misguided. Of course, I'm well aware of the arrogance of that statement, because if I say they're misguided, it means I'm right and they're wrong. And that's not the way of building a debate. You know, we we need to be able to demonstrate some strong arguments. And I think that the evidence is is mounting. There's more and more evidence that long-term thinking businesses are better at playing that game than people were just considering
0: in the short term. So um, j- just to wrap up with a, with a final couple of questions. So if we, if we were to run this podcast again in, in 2030, what are you pretty confident will be different at that point in this whole area of the relationship between business and nature? Well, that links to the previous
1: question. In 2030, I hope we will have a better understanding of the consequences of what we are doing in terms of management. I mean, there is a a school of thought saying that um, investing into companies which have strong performance in ESG, in in environmental, social and governance, are going to be more successful than in companies who are less efficient at managing ESG. And um, I see that happening already. I mean, the amount of money invested in uh, ESG-labeled type of fund is is spectacular. I suspect that will continue. I suspect it will not continue this year, or perhaps not even next year, because uh, a lot of these... um, Inefficiency in the system, in particular in terms of energy, are going to come and bite us again. I mean, you know, you, do, you don't change a system from zero to infinity in, in seconds. It's going to be a stochastic move. And if the economy restarts after the pandemic expect some sort of boom, we can debate that. But the notion that we understand what we are doing in a better way is really what I would like to see in 2030. I would like to be able to demonstrate in a clear, transparent manner that what I am doing in terms of, um, uh, of business has this and this impact, and that I can manage this impact in a way to minimize the cost of the system and maximize the output. Because, as I said before, we are going to have to do more with less. And we will only do that if we can use all these new technologies we've been talking about for a long time now to convert into a more efficient way of running businesses. And that doesn't mean into more profitable business. It means into more durable, into more sustainable businesses. What we are after is not a disparity of income. It's not an asymmetry of wealth. What we're looking for is sustainable prosperity, because that's the only way it can go forward. So I would like to see more collaboration between different groups, which will end up into a better amount of
0: um, uh, sharing of resources and income over the whole human spectrum. And when I um, sort of mentioned to our Dean Francois that we were having this conversation, it, he asked me just to follow up with a kind of further question, which is, let's suppose we're running it in this podcast in 2030 and um, we're really celebrating because we've had a really extraordinary, audacious success and uh, we're cracking open the champagne. What could that be? Not absolutely beyond the bounds of possibility, but what would your really kind of success squared outcome be? My
1: ambition, the one I I fall asleep with at night, is this idea that we will get to this sustainable prosperity we have talked about because we as humanity are going to understand the errors of our way. We have been concentrating on the things which are too simple. We've been specialising. We don't have this capacity to embrace complexity. So what we need to do now is to change the way we are with each other. You know, after the end of the Second World War, humanity, in particular in the rich north, concentrated into creating wealth. Wealth quickly, quickly, quickly. We needed to get out of the collapse of the Second World War, and we created wealth by appropriating it from different places. We've exploited the colonies, we've um, exploited minorities. Uh, In our society, we did not uh, support women in the way we should have. We still don't have any inequality between women and men. All this needs to be rethought. It needs to be reinvented. And my real toast, if I can have a bottle of champagne and drink it uh, uh, without any second thoughts, then it's because we would have reached a new societal agreement, a new way of what we owe to each other. Who are we? How do we work together? And how can we together work for something in the long term. So not opposing regulators to businesses, not opposing politicians to voters, you know, trying to get something which is a, a general assentment. There is much more robustness in diversity. The reason why biodiversity is so under threat, it's because we've been trying to subdue it to the way we do things at humanity. Uh, nature-based solution is a wonderful way of managing risk because nature has been in existence since millions of years and it deals with risk in a much more efficient way, than we poor amateurs who do it since 300 years can actually do something. And so I think the real issue is a new contract which will link humanity, nature, and natural resources in a way which will allow us to go forward. So, well, that's my dream, and I'm not sure if I'm expressing it sufficiently clearly, but, but, you know, there is something there. Collaboration is better than domination. We've tried domination for 5,000 years. It hasn't worked.
0: Andre, I think that is a very uh, inspiring and uplifting end to what's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for that. And to our listeners, please do subscribe if you want to get more episodes in this series or go to www.london.edu forward slash CCG for more related content from the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School. Andre, thank you.
1: Thank you, Tom.